It was more than 10 years ago when David Quammen wrote that a new disease was coming. The scientists he talked to for his book, Spillover, said it would probably cross to humans from a bat and that it would surface in a wet market somewhere in China. In fact, Quammen says infectious disease scientists have been saying for decades a pandemic like COVID-19 was coming. In his latest book, he describes it this way, that the scientists saw a small, dark dot on the horizon rumbling toward us like a runaway chicken truck or an 18-wheeler loaded with rolled steel. For the book, Quammen spoke with 95 of these disease experts by Zoom from a room in his house in Montana, and he pieced together the story of how they deciphered the virus, helped create vaccines, and struggled to make sense of what's coming next. Today in Radio West, Quammen is joining us. His book is called Breathless. KUER has a new way for you to communicate with us. We're calling it Tell KUER. Tell KUER is a feature in our mobile app that allows you to send voice messages to the station. Let us know how we're doing, why you listen, or what you'd like to hear more of. Got an idea for a local news story? It's a great place to drop us a line about that, too. Send us a voice message with Tell KUER and find it in the menu of KUER's mobile app. In his latest book, the science writer David Quammen describes those first few days in late December 2019, early January 2020, when these infectious disease experts were reaching out to each other about this weird pneumonia that was circulating in China. And this wasn't just one case. There were a lot of these cases, and they all looked very similar to a SARS coronavirus. At least one of the patients was linked to a wet market in the central part of that country, a city called Wuhan. And one of the ways they communicated was through an email service called ProMed. It is an internet alert service about infectious disease events. It's run from the International Society for Infectious Diseases, and it issues alerts to its subscribers Every time there is an infectious disease event of interest or note or concern around the world. So if a child in Hong Kong tests positive for avian influenza, boom, there's an email that goes to all 80,000 of us subscribers announcing that fact. Or if there's an outbreak of lumpy skin disease among water buffalo in Malaysia, we all get an email about that. If you're a subscriber, you might get 10 or 12 of these emails in a given day. And let's say you're not particularly interested in lumpy skin disease. You get so many of these things that you delete them, delete them, delete them. So after the pandemic got going, I asked myself, when did I first become alert to this? And I went back and looked at my ProMed emails that I had not deleted on the subject of a new respiratory syndrome in Wuhan, China. And I found that the earliest one I had not deleted was from January 13th, 2020. And I saw immediately why I had not deleted it. And it's because it mentioned in the subject line the word coronavirus. It said for the first time, at least that I noticed, that this new syndrome, probably caused by a virus in the city of Wuhan, had been traced to a virus, and that virus had been identified as a coronavirus. And that was like the loud alarm bell to me that this thing could be really serious because I knew that coronaviruses are on the watch list of most dangerous viruses in the world because they are a particular kind of virus. They have an RNA genome, which makes a lot of mistakes when it copies itself, and therefore they are capable of speedy evolution and jumping from one host to another. And they had a history of causing serious disease in humans going back to the original SARS virus in 2003 and the MERS virus, another coronavirus, in 2012. 
So bingo, January 13th, 2020. This is a coronavirus and my hair stood on end. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, David Quammen is joining us to talk about his latest book. It's an exhaustive exploration of the science behind the coronavirus pandemic, what the virus was and what it did, and what it took for these infectious disease experts to identify it and defeat it. And there's a lot here in the book. It really seems like a definitive portrait of the story so far. The book's already been nominated for the National Book Award. We talked to Kwame this week about his own process working through the tangle of material. When the idea of writing the book was presented to him, he told us he thought of it more as a duty than an opportunity. I was in Tasmania in February of 2020 researching a different book. Um, I flew home on March 2nd. My agent contacted me and said, your publisher, Simon & Schuster, wants a book on this pandemic. By that time, we were calling it a pandemic and we knew that it it was going to be a big catastrophic deal. I had already written an op-ed for the New York Times in late January saying, hey, people, this could be the next big one. This is a coronavirus. This could cause a very devastating pandemic. We should take it seriously. And so, you know, two months later, um, I, I'm, I'm back from Tasmania and, and my, my agent says, Simon & Schuster wants a, a pandemic book. And they think because of your past history, you might be the right person to write it. Are you interested? And I thought about that for, as I've said, for about five seconds and realized that I essentially had to say yes, um, yeah. not because it was an opportunity, but because it was a duty. I knew that um, this thing was going to be big and that I did happen to be um, someone who had a running head start on the subject. And it was logical for mm-hmm. me to to do a book. But I had I had two things arguing in my mind against it. One was that I knew that every publisher was going to want a book on this pandemic and that there would be a hundred books on this. And I generally like to write books about things that other people are not writing books about. I like to write books about things that are about to become important rather than things that um, are obviously important. And secondly, I like to go to the site where things are happening. I like to travel. One of my operating principles in researching a book is go there. If you're going to write about Ebola virus, killing gorillas in um, a Central African forest, go there. Go there with the scientists who are studying what's happening to those gorillas. If you're going to write about viruses that jump from bats into humans in southern China, go to southern China and climb through the bat caves with the scientists who are studying that. And I knew that I was not going to be able to do that with this because we already knew that travel was closing down. China was certainly closing down. I was not going to be able to get on a plane for Wuhan, China anytime soon. And I probably couldn't get on a plane to almost anywhere um, Mm -hmm. and be able to get back in the country. So I had to figure out how to deal with both of those two problems. The problem of, of writing a uniquely valuable book amidst a gaggle of other books that were going to be published about this pandemic and how to research it without traveling. And uh, it took me most of 2020 to, to figure that out. I essentially shoveled my, shuffled my feet and wrote some pieces for the New Yorker at the edge of the pandemic. And I got double knee replacement surgery. And then at the very end of 2020, I figured out how I would do that. And it, it was to write the book that I have written that breathless is a book that's about the coronavirus itself, the science of the coronavirus, and the scientists who study it. And it's based on 95 extended Zoom interviews with scientific experts around the world, in which I ask them about their work on this virus, their views of this virus. But I also ask them about their lives as, as people, as human beings, as, as teachers, as lab leaders, as spouses, as parents during the pandemic. And, and I use those voices to tell the story. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was you had particular insights. You had a head start on this. That's one of the reasons you felt like it was kind of a duty for you to write about this book. What was it that you understood? And one of the things that occurred to me was 
how your writing in natural history, in ecology and evolutionary biology mm-hmm. brought you to this interest of viruses, which we should point out, you, you've been exploring for a very long time, long before, of course, this pandemic took hold. You've talked about how you came to this realization that viruses that were emerging into this world, you know, here in the world stage, they were about ecology and about evolutionary biology. So is that the head start that you had, understanding a pandemic is a function of, of ecology? That's exactly the head start that I had, Doug. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've been writing about science in magazines and in books for about 40 years. And I've been writing about dangerous emerging new viruses for about 20 years. And um, most of my earlier writing about science was about ecology and evolutionary biology. Uh, I wrote a column for Outside Magazine for 15 years. I wrote a book published in 1996 about evolution and extinction on islands of the world and what the study of extinction and evolution on islands taught us about evolution generally, and the problem of mass extinction. And I wrote a lot about conservation for National Geographic magazine and other magazines. And then I had this experience of walking through a Congo forest with a scientist who was doing an epic exploratory hike across 2,000 miles of Congo forest. I didn't walk all 2,000 miles with him, but I walked a long way with him. And at one point we walked through Ebola habitat, an area of forest in northeastern Gabon that was known to be a site where Ebola existed in its reservoir host, the animal that it hides in, whatever that was, unknown then, still unknown now. But we knew the virus was there because there had been a village at the edge of this forest where there had been a horrible Ebola outbreak. Mm -hmm. So I went walking through this forest with this scientist and his team. And we knew that Ebola was there in the forest with us somewhere in some animal. We did not want it to spill into us. Uh, But I realized that this was all a matter of ecology and evolutionary biology, as you said. Um, Humans interacting with wild animals in their habitat. That's an aspect of ecology. Viruses spilling over into a new host and adapting because they have high mutation rates adapting to a new host. That's evolutionary biology. So I realized it will if if. Emerging viruses is a subject that really is um, exists within ecology and evolutionary biology. Then, hey, count me in. That's my wheelhouse. I can write about yeah. this stuff. You describe viruses as the dark angels of evolution, um, critical really to life as we know it. It's an important, I think, thing to understand when working through this book. Let, let's talk a little bit about – I guess how thrilling – I was surprised at how thrilling it was mm. to um, read of the back and forth, the sense of urgency in those early days mm-hmm. as the scientists are – virologists are pinging each other about this fast-moving story, mm-hmm. this understanding about genetics – you know, these genetic codes and the genome and then publishing it. And, you know, people are on airplanes making decisions about should we publish Mm -hmm. this thing now? Talk a little bit about that, because that sense of urgency, certainly in this part of the book, that first part is really intense in some ways. Yes, yes. And that's I mean, that's one of the reasons this book is titled Breathless. This was a breathless (laughs) chase. And these scientists were working under extreme pressure of time because they knew this virus had the potential to spread around the world and, oh, for instance, kill six million people, which is which it has close to seven million now. But in those very early days, the last couple days of December 2019, in the first month of 2020, uh, scientists were scrambling to figure out what this thing was and based on what it was, answer two other questions. Where did it come from and what's it going to do? And those lives were hanging in the balance. So these scientists, um, some of whom I knew before from researching my book Spillover and uh, that was published in 2012, um, some of them I knew before and I could go to them and say, hey, hey, Eddie Holmes in Sydney, Australia, what's going on? Hey, Peter Daszak, what's going on? Hey, Marjorie Pollack, uh, deputy uh, editor of ProMed, the woman who spread the word on ProMed to eight, those 80,000 of us on the evening of December 30th and then on New Year's Eve, December 31st of 2019. 
she was the one who picked up the signal and started to spread the word that something was going on that could be dangerous in the city of Wuhan. And so the information that passed from Marjorie Pollack to Peter Daszak, from Eddie Holmes to Christian Anderson in La Jolla, California, these guys who study the molecular evolution of viruses, and from a scientist in Shanghai named Yongzhen Zhang to Eddie Holmes. This was, to me, a riveting story, and I tried to make it a riveting story for the reader. Yongzhen Zhang, for instance, in Shanghai, was one of the very first people to sequence the complete virus, the complete genome of this virus, and see that, okay, this is a SARS-like coronavirus, but it's different from the original 2003 SARS by 25% of its genome. It's got some peculiar aspects to it that we haven't seen in other SARS-like viruses. Where did it come from and what's it going to do? And he was communicating with his colleague, Eddie Holmes, this brilliant evolutionary virologist in Sydney, and saying, we should write a paper. And Eddie started saying to him, no, Zhang, before we write a paper, we need to publish this genome. We need to get it out to the world um, as soon as possible so that people can use it to try and cope with this virus, for instance, starting vaccine research. And so Zhang was sitting on a plane um, in Shanghai getting ready to fly to Beijing to confer with his bosses. And um, Eddie calls him and catches him as they're closing the door of the plane and Zhang is buckling his seatbelt. And Eddie is saying, Zhang, we've got to publish this genome. This was on the morning of um, January 11th, 2020, Sydney and Shanghai time, um, evening of January 10th in the U.S. Eddie persuades Zhang that at some risk to his own career, he needs to release this genome. He, he has one of his lab people send it to Eddie. Eddie gets the genome in a file. It's 30,000 letters of DNA long, just letter after letter on a page. Eddie, who this great analyzer of genomes, tells me, I didn't even look at the damn stuff. It could have been glowworm DNA for all mm-hmm. I knew. But he sent it to a colleague of his in Edinburgh who runs a website that publishes the brainstorming pre journal paper, Thoughts of Scientists. It's a website called virological.org. And this genome went up within 52 minutes of Eddie getting it. And that was fast enough for Tony Fauci and Barney Graham in Washington to, to see it and to say, okay, now begins our search for a vaccine. All of this happened in a matter of minutes. It was breathless. Mm. One of the things you explore, of course, is the the relationship, the connection between SARS and and the, you know the, what what we come to now understand as you know COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. um, and it brings us to one of the great characters in the book, I think, anyway, one of the many, of course, Ali Khan. Um, mm. Talk a little bit about your your your. I think you went out for sushi. I think he yeah. took you out for dinner, and 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 you have this interesting conversation that I think was revealing. And he he says to you, "What was your favorite right. virus?" Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And you you said Ebola, which you said was was kind of like not a very interesting answer. It's kind of like saying you know if somebody asks you your favorite horror novel, you just go to something easy like. Stephen King. That was interesting. But um, he said his most interesting was was SARS. Yes. Yes. And you and you asked him why. Talk about this moment. I thought yeah, this was, this was really a moment important. that occurred back in I think it was about 2006. And National Geographic had asked me to research and write an article about essentially these viruses that come out of wild animals, new viruses that get into humans and cause horrible, scary diseases. As with any story for National Geographic in those days, I had the opportunity to do a crazy abundant amount of research for this story. I flew to Australia and talked to people about Hendra virus coming out of bats, getting to humans through racehorses. I went to Cambodia to vaccinate chickens along the 
Vietnamese border, uh, the Congo, to watch a guy try and tranquilize gorillas to take blood samples looking for Ebola antibodies. And of course, I went to the CDC. And Ali Khan at that time was deputy head of the section of the CDC involved with what were called special pathogens, you know, dangerous new viruses and other infectious agents. And I went up and down the corridor of the special pathogens branch for most of two days interviewing different scientists, talking to this guy about rabies, talking to that guy about Ebola, talking to this guy over here about Marburg virus. And in the middle of the second day, Ali Khan, this genial, smart epidemiologist with a long history at the CDC, says to me, hey, Kwaman, let's go out to lunch. I'll take you out to lunch. Uh, okay, great. So we go out to lunch at a sushi place, and Ali Khan is both a brilliant and devoted scientist who has risked his life in dangerous disease situations to help save people, and a guy with a sort of detached, dark, ironic sense of humor. So over sushi, when my recorder and my notebook are tucked away, he says to me, okay, Kwaman, you've talked to a lot of my people about these various different diseases. What, what's your favorite? And as you said, my answer was, well, I find Ebola pretty damn interesting. And as I say in the book, this was like somebody asking you, who's your favorite obscure, little known, underrated horror novelist? And you answer Stephen King. You know, it's a rookie's answer. And so Ali Khan says to me, literally, as far as I can remember, yeah, I like Ebola as much as the next person. But for me, the really dramatic, interesting one was SARS in 2003. And I said, really, SARS? SARS, that was that coronavirus in China, right? Mm -hmm. And I knew that SARS had only infected about 8,000 people and it killed one in 10, 800. And then, it, yeah. and then it disappeared or it was stopped or something happened. And that was it. And I said, why SARS? And Ali had been on the response team in Singapore fighting against SARS in 2003, again, risking his life. And he said, because SARS could have been so much worse. It was a coronavirus. We dodged a bullet. It killed one person in 10, but it did not transmit from asymptomatic cases. It did not transmit until a person was really sick and you could see they were sick. If that virus had been capable of asymptomatic transmission, it would have been much, much more dangerous. So the nightmare scenario was a virus like SARS, except capable of asymptomatic transmission. And then, so bingo, we get SARS-2, COVID-19 virus. And that's where we are, right? So that the bullet we dodged was that SARS wasn't asymptomatic, didn't transmit right. in that way. The coronavirus does. So I, I guess the question is, what does that mean? Why? Why is the coronavirus, the, you know, COVID-19, why is it transmissible in those who are asymptomatic? Is that a reflection of... Was it a mutation? Was it a yeah. just a different? What do we know about that? Yeah. Well, one thing I I should say before I answer that is that um, what one of the things I've learned from from that conversation with Ali and and all my other research is that these bullets are flying past our head all the time. Hmm. There we we live in a hail of bullets, and we dodge the bullet of SARS one or at least it only winged us and, you know, killed 800 people. And we took SARS-2 right in the chest, um, the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but it's not just those viruses that are like bullets. We're, we've got bullets flying all around us um, because all of the wild animals that we come in contact with in various different ways around the planet carry their own viruses, and, and many of them have the potential to infect humans. So to your question, why is this virus so much more dangerous than SARS-1? Uh, it's capable of transmission from, um, from asymptomatic cases, and it's also, in other ways, probably 
much more capable of transmission. Maybe it lingers in the air longer than SARS-1 did. Maybe it survives outside of the body, exposed to desiccation and ultraviolet light a little bit longer than SARS-1. Maybe it infects the cells in our upper airways more abundantly than SARS-1 did. Maybe SARS-1 was more a virus of the lower airways, depending on which kinds of molecules on the outsides of which kinds of cells it could grab onto. The combination of these things, um, you know, maybe something else, maybe something else makes this thing um, transmissible from humans, to, human to human before they get sick. Part of the answer, um, Doug, is that I don't think we know yet just exactly yeah. why this virus is transmissible from human to humans. I, I haven't seen the, the absolute satisfactory answer to that. David Quammen, his new book is Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Keep your KUER membership up to date with My KUER. It's an online portal for you to manage all aspects of your support. Update payment or contact information, increase your monthly donation, or just pitch in a little extra. You can view past donations, print a tax receipt, and reach out to us about your account by sending us a message. Log in or create an account today at KUER.org slash MyKUER. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. The science writer David Quammen says infectious disease scientists have been saying for decades a pandemic like COVID-19 was coming. He has a new book that lays out the race to figure out the virus and the urgent need to defeat it. Quammen spoke with 95 of these disease experts by Zoom from a room in his house in Montana. And he pieced together the story of how they deciphered the virus, how they helped create these vaccines and how they struggle to make sense of what's coming next. The book is called Breathless. Years ago, when you were talking about the work you had done on Spillover, your book, in 2012, mm -hmm. you, you had mentioned um, – and it's, I think this was a, an important way of understanding um, that story. You said every zoonotic disease starts as a mystery story. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the mystery story for COVID-19 because the, the, the question that you work through in the book, well, one of the questions anyway, of course, is what's the origin here? Sure. Is this yeah. – was this natural or is there something else going on? Was there something nefarious? Was this an engineered virus or a right. manipulated virus that just got loose from that, from that lab or a lab? Talk a little bit about working through this right. question. Well, this was something that um, there were hints of this question from the very beginning, because, yeah. as I mentioned, there were a couple of unexpected features in the genome of this virus. Once scientists got it sequenced, there were two features that hadn't been seen in SARS-like coronaviruses from animals. And the essence of those two features is that they they make this virus more capable of grabbing onto human cells and entering human cells. And uh, so early on, scientists were saying, well, okay, where did this virus come from? And where did those two features come from? And what's the significance of that? And then very quickly, that conversation spread from the scientific experts to social media, to a bunch of amateurs who were jumping in and opining on that question. And some of these folks started saying, this, this virus shouldn't have those two things, and therefore those two features must have been engineered into this virus. This is a laboratory virus, and either it was intentionally engineered with malign intent by evil mm -hmm. scientists in China, or who knows, maybe at the, at, at the CIA, and released intentionally to kill people, 
or maybe it was assembled by scientific fiddling in a laboratory for research purposes, and then it leaked from that lab. So those two versions of what I call the nefarious origins school of thought uh, took hold on social media and started ricocheting and echoing around the echo chamber of social media. Um, and a few uh, journalists picked up on that, and then a few mm. more journalists, because um, that that story just turned into catnip for um, magazine and newspaper editors around the world. Uh, and it got a lot of attention because it's exciting and people people like to read about conspiracies. People, Some people want to believe in conspiratorial explanations for important events because random happenstance just is not nearly as, as exciting and satisfying. Hmm. In the meantime, um, there was no real empirical data added to support that. And there was a lot of data added to support the notion, the hypothesis that this is a natural virus, very similar to viruses that are found in bats in southern China, particularly in horseshoe bats, one particular genus of bats. There's a chain of supply in live wildlife, in some cases including bats and a number of other wild creatures, a chain of supply that leads straight up to the city of Wuhan and to the, to the wet markets um, that sell live wildlife for food in those markets, or at least did uh, until they were closed in on January 1st of 2020. And so I try and tease those different theories apart in yeah. the book and and give them all a fair hearing. But I don't pretend that I'm completely on the fence. I find natural origins a far, far, far more persuasive explanation than the lab leak hypothesis. And I find the scientists who embrace that and who have adumbrated that hypothesis vastly more qualified and more persuasive than the people who are arguing the lab leak hypothesis. Yeah, you mentioned there's no positive positive evidence that it leaked from a lab. And I guess the 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 sort of question that comes from that then is why it matters whether it's natural or created or manipulated in a lab. And one of the things you said is that the implications, I guess the obligation or the ethical questions that come from the idea that it's natural, a natural virus is important. That matters to this story, I guess. Right, right. Yes, I think this question matters big for two reasons. One, if you take the lab leak hypothesis versus a natural origins hypothesis, the natural origins hypothesis, the implication of that is that this event and this kind of event come from human contact with wild animals, exposing ourselves to the viruses that they carry. Um, and we're all responsible for that contact, even if we're not eating bats, even if we're not going to a market and buying a raccoon dog or a bamboo rat um, that might be infected with a virus from a rat. Even if we're not doing that, we are doing things that cause contact between humans and wild animals at the interface of richly diverse ecosystems and result in spillovers of viruses. What, for instance, are we doing? Well, we're consuming. There are 8 billion of us humans around the planet. We're all hungry. Uh, we want to feed ourselves. People want to feed their children. Uh, people want to consume energy. People want to consume timber. People want to consume strategic minerals. And a lot of those things come from richly diverse ecosystems, in particular tropical forests. So, Natural Origins tells us we need to look in the mirror and consider our own responsibility. Uh, the lab leak hypothesis allows people to say, it wasn't our fault. It was those. It was those mm -hmm. evil scientists over there, just those few people in that laboratory in China or these people who are doing this kind of research. It was their fault. So we're off the hook. That's one consequence. The other implication of the answer to the origins question uh, is related to that, and that is if you believe in natural origins, then uh, you believe that we need more research. We need more research on the dangerous viruses that lurk in animals around the world. We need more research in the mechanisms of spillover. We need more sampling of bats in southern China and elsewhere um, to see what viruses might be next so we can learn which, which bullet might fly at us 
Next, we need more research. And if you believe it was a matter of a laboratory leak, the implication is we need less research. We need to shut down those kinds of laboratories. We need to stop those kinds of experiments. Those two things are, I think, very important watershed issues that depend on the answer to the question of origins. Well, one of the arguments against you know, COVID-19 being, you know, nefariously engineered or adapted specifically to humans is just how good it seems to be at infecting other mammals, Mm -hmm. which gets us to something you write about, this sylvatic cycle Um, and and the implications of the fact that it now has become adapted to other mammals, cats and minks and white-tailed deer and 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 what that's going to mean for the way this virus evolves and affects us. Right. This is one of the things that, that makes it almost crazy making to hear people say this virus was uniquely adapted to humans too close for comfort from the very beginning. Because right from the beginning, it was it infected a Pomeranian dog, it infected a German shepherd, it infected some cats, animals that were companion animals to people who were infected with the virus. So they spread it to their, their pets. Lions and tigers and snow leopards and gorillas in zoos became infected from zookeepers. Mink and mink farms across Europe became infected and it rampaged through them. White-tailed deer in the Midwest and Middle Atlantic states uh, somehow got infected and it has spread very readily, apparently, through white-tailed deer populations. Um, So a broadly adapted virus. um, And once that virus gets into, for instance, the white-tailed deer of western Pennsylvania, is it ever going to be gotten out of those deer? Well, almost certainly not. Um, mink going feral, escaping from mink farms on the landscape of Denmark, mink escaping from mink farms in Utah onto the landscape, yeah. infecting other yeah. wild mink. This virus is now out there in the wild. It may soon be in infecting mice or other rodents in the wild too. We don't know that for sure yet, but it's been shown in laboratories that it could do that. So this virus is not just going to be in humans all over the world. It's going to be in animals in many parts of the world. And that, if it results in reinfection of humans from some contact with those secondarily infected animals, that's what's Mm -hmm. called the sylvatic cycle. Silva as in the Latin word for forest. The forest cycle of a virus bouncing back and forth from non-human animal hosts into humans so that even when you clear it from a population of humans, that human population is susceptible to becoming reinfected by contact with the sylvatic cycle, the wild animals that carry it. And that happens with yellow fever, and it's probably going to happen with this virus too. David Quammen, his latest book is Breathless, the scientific race to defeat a deadly virus. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Great Salt Lake has reached a record low. With drought, climate change, and population growth, how can Utah better support its critical body of water? KUER is a member of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. It's a group of news and nonprofit organizations engaging and informing the public about the crisis facing Great Salt Lake. We're also focused on solutions journalism. That means we're not just talking about the problem. We're also asking what can be done before it's too late. Learn more at greatsaltlakenews.org. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Back now to our conversation with the science writer David Quammen. We're talking about his book, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. I want to get to two things that you – that you, I guess debunk is, is a way to put it. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of us here in – like at dinner parties and, you know, conversations that we have with friends offhandedly about – what we think we now know about the coronavirus mm-hmm. is comes into this category of of thinking that you describe as these four kinds of magic. And I wanted to talk about one in particular, and it's this idea that um, we're going to be saved 
by herd immunity now. Mm. And you introduced this, to me anyway, this idea of a closed population. Talk a little bit about that, because this was frightening. Frankly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we heard early on, uh, oh, don't worry about this. We'll just let it burn through. Some people argued, let's just let it burn through the population and it might kill a number of old people and it'll infect a lot of people. And then we're, we'll reach a point of herd immunity and the problem will be solved. And that was always a false hope, a false solution for a, a number of reasons. And I happened to know a little bit about herd immunity because I had studied it for earlier books. Uh, I went back to the history of herd immunity comes from agriculture, animal husbandry, veterinary science, when they were talking about actual herds of domestic animals. This goes back 100 years, and it applies this way. If you have a herd of, let's say, a 1,000 cows, and let's say a new virus or a bacterium infects them, and it starts passing through your herd, there will be a point where you, you might lose 30% of your herd, just die. And another 60% of your cows suffer this infection with this virus, and they recover. So that's 30% of your herd is dead, 60% have recovered, you've got 10% left. Now, those 10%, will they have herd immunity? What does that mean? Well, if the virus has now infected the cows that have recovered and that are permanently immune to reinfection with that virus then those 10% remaining from your original herd are in less danger of being exposed to it because the virus can't find them easily. But that's a closed herd. If you bring in another 300 cows to supplement your herd, 300 immunologically naive cows that have never been exposed to this, then the virus starts to circulate again. It easily finds fresh cows to infect, and so it can attack that new 30% that you've added to replace the 30% you lost, and it also now has a better chance of infecting those 5% that it couldn't find before because the virus is rattling around everywhere again. In other words, herd immunity gives you no protection unless you're living in a closed herd, and there is no closed herd of humans on this planet because we're constantly traveling and mixing. And so yeah. we cannot expect herd immunity to protect us any more than we're protected, as I say in the book. It gives you the same sort of protection as if you walk out onto a golf course in the middle of a thunder and lightning storm. The lightning will probably hit the other guy or a tree. But does that make you immune to the lightning? No. If it hits you, you're still dead. One more um, thing that you uh, have have talked about in terms of sort of debunking an idea that that people are seem to be holding fast to is this idea that look the way viruses work is they get less fatal, less mm -hmm. dangerous as they mutate. They they don't want their hosts to die; they want to persist, and so they just get less less dangerous and less fatal. But you said. That's not how natural selection works. Will you, will you explain that quickly? That's right. Yeah. Some people think that, that they know this fact, that viruses evolve toward being innocuous, that this virus will inevitably evolve toward being just a nuisance like the common cold. But they don't understand how natural selection works. They don't understand how, how parasitism works. The, and, and viruses are parasites. They're genetic parasites. One slogan that you hear sometimes, Doug, is the first rule of a successful parasite is don't kill your host, right? But that's not the first rule of a successful parasite. The first rule of a successful parasite is don't kill your host until you've had a chance to transmit to another host, to another individual. After you have achieved transmission, it doesn't matter to you whether yeah. the first host dies because you have achieved evolutionary success just by jumping from one host to another and then to another and then to another and then to another. So it may be that just by chance mutation, random changes in the, in this virus, it might evolve toward being less virulent, but only if that does not affect its ability to transmit. <laughs> and if continuing to be 
highly virulent, is either helpful to this virus achieving transmission or neutral to this virus achieving transmission, then there's no reason why it'll evolve toward being less harmful. There's this um, kind of kind of overarching theme that I found important to say something about where you describe how science for those of us sort of figuring this out, understanding as 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 you have these conversations with these 95 scientists, that science is performed by humans. Mm-hmm. Science is human. It's this rational process, you say, of course, that the idea is to, to lead toward a better understanding of the material world, but it's performed by humans. And you say in the book toward the end that the scientists can tell us a lot about where a virus comes from and where it might be going. So it can give us insights, of course, about what's happening right now, but they can't tell us everything. And they know that, that these are just pieces of the whole. Why is that important to understand? Because this is sort of where you where you end up with this, that insight or one of these insights. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very important to understand, and it is a major subtext of the book, how science works, what science is. I think it's important for people to understand that because, uh, among other reasons, because we live in an, in an age now where there is, there is so much distrust of science, denial of science, rejection of science. And that part of that comes from the fact that people really don't understand what science is and how it works. So for, for one specific inter, in, instance, you know, if Tony Fauci says in late January of 2020, well, everybody shouldn't run out and buy masks and masks up against this virus. Um, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. And then two months later, he says, yes, everybody should mask up. People say, well, Tony Fauci, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Science doesn't know what it's talking about. He changed his mind. We say one thing in January, you say another thing in March. What's the deal there? Well, the deal is that that data have continued to accumulate and that circumstances have changed. What circumstance? Well, for one thing, the supply of masks. In January, there were not enough masks for healthcare workers who were on the front line of dealing with this virus with people who were very severely infected in hospitals. And so Tony Fauci and other public health people did not want a run on masks that would take masks away from the people who needed them most. A couple months pass, there starts to be a flood of supply of masks. A lot of manufacturers are jumping on the mask bandwagon. We all start being able to buy masks. And he says, yes, that's a good idea. You should mask up because you can protect yourself from being infected and Equally important, you can protect yourself if you have this virus from spreading it to other people if you're wearing a mask. So circumstances have changed. Therefore, the answer changed. That's science. Science is always correcting itself. And even set apart the, the question of commercial supply, science is always capable of revising hypotheses based on new data when new data challenge the old hypotheses. That's what science does. It's a provisional process of moving toward ever more accurate understanding of the physical world based on the latest available data and the latest available uh, interpretations of that data. And that has been going on ever since, ever since the Ptolemaic model of the universe with the Earth at the middle of the universe was replaced by the Copernican view of the universe, thanks to Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler and other scientists in the 15th and 16th century who started making observations with telescopes and suddenly had new data. That's what science is. That's how science works. I want to ask you about the structure of the book and how you put all of this together, because you've talked about how you have drawn on the work of Faulkner. And I have to ask you about that. You mentioned how your own academic education is not in science, but in, but in literature. Mm-hmm. And the, the, these ideas of this uncertainty principle didn't come from physics. It came from William Faulkner, the novelist, mm-hmm. and how he was helpful in you putting together Spillover and, and this book and, and some of your other work. Say something about Faulkner, if you would. I first became exposed to Faulkner in 
It's probably about 1967 when I was a college sophomore. My brother-in-law recommended I read a book called The Sound and the Fury, this book about the decay of a genteel Southern family in Mississippi in the early 20th century. And it was told from multiple points of view, five different points of view, uh, three brothers, a woman who worked as an employee in the family home, a black woman, and then another narrator. And you started reading this thing, and it made no sense because the first brother telling the story was a, a severely mentally disabled person. And yet his narration started to make a lot of sense after you realized that that's what this person was. He was considered, quote unquote, an idiot um, in his family. Uh, and hence the title of the book, which comes from Shakespeare. Uh, it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing from Macbeth. Yeah. And so I read this book and for the first five pages, I was really befuddled. And then I saw what was going on. I understood the perspective of this first brother. And I read more and more of Faulkner. And I saw that a number of his books involved this, this technique of telling the story in fragments from different points of view. It has stayed with me all my life that truth is never available from one single point of view. It's something that you assemble in pieces, in facets, through listening to, appreciating, absorbing multiple points of view. The one truth that I've taken from Faulkner, and it's stayed with me for 55 years or whatever it is, and that was absolutely important as I assembled the different voices talking about this virus and, and put together the book. David Quammen, thank you very much. You're welcome, Doug. A pleasure to talk with you, and it's so much fun. David Quammen, his latest book is Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 